This is a CBC Podcast. If you stick around to the end of our show every week, you hear me say, Jimmy Gwetch, thanks for listening. That's been my radio sign-off for a while now, because I'm Anishinaabe, and Jimmy Gwetch means big thank you in our language. It's my small way of trying to normalize indigenous languages again, after this country spent over a century deliberately trying to stamp them out. That's the thing. I don't even speak in Anishinaabe one. It's the hole in my heart. So, I started going to evening classes a few years ago. Bungi et the go Anishinaabem one. I only speak a little bit, and it's been a really hard journey. But I really want to learn. I want to connect to the words and the ideas of my ancestors and spend time with other Anishinaabe folks who want to pass on the language to our kids and our grandkids. But you know what really surprised me about my Anishinaabe one classes? How many non-Indigenous people were there? Sometimes more than Anishinaabe students. Not something I ever would have predicted, and turns out, it's a hell of a story. I'm Duncan McHugh. Or, to put it another way, Mamikwajamon Manda. Duncan McHugh, Indigenous. Snowing lots and lots and lots. Chizog po. Eh, goon cop je. Zozep Gijigat, the Nagshimam pin Nagojuanang. It's Wednesday night in Peterborough. This is like the second most serious snow we've gotten this winter. That's Janaid Khan. <laughs> We're now at uh, Sarah's place because uh, it's Nishnabimuin class time. Janaid is learning what the Guinness Book of World Records once listed as the most complex language in the world, Anishinaabe one. Hi. Tonight he's visiting one of his classmates, Sarah Wood. Sarah is Anishinaabe, and she's learning to speak her mother tongue. So I feel really lucky that this class is online because we obviously, we live here in Nagojuanong, Peterborough, um, and the rest of the class comes from Toronto. Um, so yeah, when Janae just said in class, like, oh, Nagojuanong, I was kind of like, that's going to be my, my new language friend. <laughs> Your language buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Thing is, Janae isn't Anishinaabe. Pakistan and Don Jaba, I come from Pakistan. He immigrated to Canada two decades ago. He's fluent in Urdu and English, but once a week, for nearly four years now, he's devoted himself to studying the original language of the land he now calls home. Uh, 
The faces popping up in their Zoom class are a mixture of Anishinaabe and non-indigenous students. <laughs> oh, a really crucial aspect of, of learning the language for me was being able to call things by their Anishinaabemoyan names. Animals. Yeah, animals, plants. Birds. Birds. Fish. Yeah, yeah. It felt like if I could say the names of species that existed on this land, there's a place for you here, you know. Let me explain. Janaid's Anishinaabemowin language journey began when he was struggling to complete his PhD in Toronto in biology. I had not met very many people in the biology, ecology, conservation realm that were people of color. So I, I had this grandiose idea of like, all right, I want to do a PhD on the practical application of a decolonizing approach to conservation practice. And I was going to use native bees just as a case study to do that. Decolonizing Western science made sense to him, having grown up in Pakistan, a country scarred by imperialism. I know what colonization's about. Been there. Most of my family trauma comes from that process. But then he was talking with his mom. She was talking about a friend of hers, and she was just like, you know, can you believe she's lived here for 25 years and she still can't speak, like, English fully, you know? And it hit me in that moment. I was like, crap, mom, like you and I have both been here for 16 years. Neither of us know a word of like an indigenous language. If, if I expect that, you know, somebody would learn Urdu in order to engage with people in Pakistan, then I need to figure out what the languages are of the people who lived here and still live here. Except he didn't know what the original language was in the place now called Toronto. And I just remember, you know, Anishinaabek kind of sticking in my head. I was like, oh, okay, they're like, they're big people around here. They used, you know, they used to be everywhere. They're territories. They're part of a lot of treaties. So they have a language. So I just started looking up like indigenous language learning in Toronto and not a lot came up, but... He managed to I find an evening class at the Native Canadian Centre, known as the NCCT. I just went to the NCCT one day, and I was like, language class. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's on so-and-so night. I was like, okay, cool. I guess I'll come back then. So I came back and forth, like, three different times before I finally managed to enroll. And like, Meanwhile, Janaid's struggles with his PhD had him questioning his whole purpose in life. It was definitely exacerbated by, by the stresses of graduate life, you know? Like, I don't think life should feel like you're about to fall into the maws of a dragon at any given time. But I was uh, a very tough and lonely place. I found myself mentally. He was having difficulty even getting out of bed some days. But he finally dragged himself to his first Anishinaabe in one class. And it was terrifying. <laughs> I walked in and it was so full, which was super cool. 
and there were like kids in the back and it seemed like everybody knew each other but there was there was no charge for the class it was a free class yeah i felt really weird being in this free class. i was like maybe it's not free for like non-indigenous people there is just this pins and needles <laughs> for me that i just felt like i was occupying space that really should be for someone else you know like Another indigenous person should be there instead of me being there. But nobody was like, you can't be here. And I really tried to find a spot like towards the back of the room, but I couldn't. I ended up sitting in the very front and Ninatek just jumped in. Then he picked up a ukulele. I was like, okay. And he started playing the ukulele and, you know, Bojo, bojo, anishna. Bojo, bojo, anishna. But I have no idea what he's saying. This is my first day. <laughs> and he walks over to me and looks me dead in the eyes, as if for me to sing. And I just, I was like, nodded no. <laughs> I was like, I don't. And he moved on to the next person. I was like, oh my God, everybody here knows that song by heart. I was sitting next to a student and he was, man, he was so gracious. Like this was my first time interacting with like another indigenous person like my age. He's kind of leaned in and he's like, don't worry. I also forget the song. And so like the ice broke. If I want my language to, to, to be like a national language, regional language here in Canada, like it can't just be Anishinaabek who speak it, right? To Nanatek Stats Pungawish, Junaid's ukulele playing teacher at the Native Center, it's simple. Nishnabamwan, like all indigenous languages, is endangered. He and other teachers are fighting to revitalize it. Nanatig figures the more, the merrier. Ani Tiffany. Ani. Ani Shnagi. That's why he also teaches at the University of Toronto. In the university setting, like 75-80% is non-indigenous. I don't know, learning language in general is hard. Learning indigenous languages that are chronically underfunded is a hard task for indigenous and non-indigenous learners. No one is tracking how many non-Indigenous people are Indigenous language learners. In 2021, Statistics Canada reported that a pretty small number of non-Indigenous people, around 6,000, are fluent speakers of an Indigenous language, most as a second language. But a lot more are learning, though. Take just one province as an example. In British Columbia, over a hundred public schools, colleges, and universities offer indigenous language courses to students of all cultural backgrounds. 
Non-Indigenous language learners are even popping up in the House of Commons. That's Minister of Indigenous Services Mark Miller, who is white, reading a statement in 2017 in Ganyan the Mohawk language, which he quietly started studying online. I did it because I wanted to show solidarity to my friends who were working on, on perfecting their French, and I thought, oh, how hard could it be? Um, it's extremely hard, uh, and I was extremely naive when I got into it. I'm an outsider into those communities, um, and I'm very privileged to experience that. Janaid felt privileged, too, to learn Anishinaabemwin, even grateful for what the language brought to his life and taught him about being an ecologist, a whole new non-Western way to look at connections to land. More than that, as he threw himself into learning the language, slowly he felt his depression lifting. The simple act of coming to a class for apparently the world's hardest language uh, seemed really inspiring. It got you up out of bed? Yeah. It was, there was like, there were these other people who were also struggling with the same language. And for, you know, some of them, this is the language of their, of their ancestors. The way of thinking about the language, I think, got me out of my sadness stupor. There was just something to keep feeding on. This like endless mystery of this, this Pandora's box of a language. I'm visiting the home of another Sarah, Sarah McDowell. She's a former librarian, non-Indigenous, now working on her master's thesis at U of T. My thesis is about what non-Indigenous people can or should do to support First Nations language revitalization. Sarah began studying Anishinaabemowin a dozen years ago to be a good ally. When you don't hear Indigenous languages around you, that contributes to this sense of invisibility of Indigenous people, right? Then we don't have to feel guilty. So I think that when we learn Indigenous languages, it's a way to undo that injustice and ensure that Indigenous people have the, their languages back, their land, and their families, you know, safe and sound. For her thesis, she's interviewed numerous Anishinaabe elders and language teachers, all support the idea of non-Indigenous learners taking up the language. But it's not problem-free. You know, in, in the past, um, non-Indigenous people have learned Indigenous languages so that they could promote their careers uh, without giving back to the community, not thinking about the community. So, you know... Like linguists. Like linguists or, or anthropologists, uh, folklorists, even government employees, and so on, all kinds of, of people. So... Uh, that's really problematic. And I know. Um, and even stickier problem when it comes to classroom dynamics is when non Indigenous students start learning the language faster than Indigenous students. 
One of the things that people have talked about is that Indigenous people often have a lot of trauma uh, about languages because they've been in residential schools or their parents or their grandparents. And those things can impede your learning because when you're emotionally upset like that and you're worried about things like that, it's harder to learn. And then you have non-Indigenous students who don't have to deal with that. So they can cause different kinds of feelings, uh, in, you know, lack of self-confidence, uh, inadequacy. It can also like, make people feel angry, like, who the heck are these people in here, and, you know, and why are they taking up time, and so on. So That's why Sarah believes if communities decide language classes should be for Indigenous students only, non-Indigenous learners should just back off. That it doesn't mean that we're being rejected. Nobody said they didn't like non-Indigenous people or didn't want non-Indigenous people learning Indigenous languages, at least within the Anishinaabe community. It just means that Indigenous people need a space where they can heal and learn together, right? Trouble is, many Indigenous languages are in such a precarious state, there aren't enough language teachers to go around. Gnawap, one beach is in it. He watched him come flying. Uh, I just want to stop here and point out that use of an A form and a B form, right? Like, should he watch them doing something that this part is A? So when public schools and universities start offering classes, it can draw language teachers away from teaching language in Indigenous settings. For me, it's a balance of, like, where to put my own energy. Here's Nanatik Stats Pangawesh again. You know, you, you obviously have to put food on the table and heat the house. And sometimes, you know, jobs teaching non-Native people pay more. The provincial school across the boards offer that those, like, benefits, pension, uh, job security through the union. Um, it, it does draw away resources. I'm doing a, a private class for non-Indigenous people. But me spending all that time there takes away from that time that I could spend with Indigenous students. Until there are more Anishinaabeg fluent enough to teach, Nanatek thinks maybe beginner courses, which are often full of non-Indigenous students, could be taught by non-Indigenous teachers. That would allow Anishinaabe teachers to focus on rebuilding fluency in Anishinaabeg communities. So we need more non-Indigenous people learning Indigenous languages who can be certified by Indigenous people to teach languages to non-Indigenous people, to do, to do that ally work. But at the same time, it's a, it's a little bit of a slippery slope, right? Um, because? Because considering Canada's history, non-Indigenous people should not be profiting off of Indigenous uh, cultures, languages, arts and crafts, uh, you know, what have you. Which brings me out in the woods with Janaid Khan. The day's getting nicer. Are you going to sing for us? Remember what Janaid said earlier about what motivated him? Learning the names of animals and birds. Hi. Oh, Hi. cool. Landed on your yeah. hand. Bipeguayan is... Bipigwe? Nuthatch. A couple years ago, he met Joe Pedawanaquit, a young Anishinaabe plant expert. Today, he's walking with Joe through the woods near Toronto, working on their latest project. Most birds, they're real clean in the way that they just come in and they eat all of the bugs. 
that one though separates all of the bark, peels all the bark off. BP, BP is like a separation. a separation of something. Joe has been working to revitalize traditional plant knowledge for years, using the wisdom embedded in Anishinaabemwin. He's not fluent himself though, and he was really discouraged at how few Anishinaabe children are learning the language, which is why he started working to reclaim and promote the Anishinaabe names of birds. Kids just seem to be really attracted to indigenous taxonomy of birds, our names, and uh, to generate interest in a young learner to say that's a magical language. (laughs) So you're seeing birds as being kind of the gateway drug into learning the language and and connecting with, with the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's my biggest motivator for the project. And that's where Junaid comes in. He and Joe and another biologist started working on a project to document Anishinaabe bird names, combining Joe's traditional knowledge with Junaid's scientific expertise. They're researching the ecology of bird behavior that's embedded in Anishinaabe language and worldview. Well, I remember Joe blowing my mind with this one one time. We were talking about Migize, you know? It's like the most... Most quintessential bird name in Anishinaabe one. Like, you know, if you say... Eagle. Eagle, yeah. If you say Migaze, people are like, yeah, no Migaze. And you go over to the English version of that name, and it's bald eagle. Who do you have to be in order for your head to be white when you're bald? An elder. Yeah, and but also an elder Caucasian person is bald and looks white. But that that doesn't tell you anything about the eagle. The eagle's not actually bald. Whereas Migaze is actually describing what the bird does, right? Migiscon, a hook, and its, its talons are just like that. They look just perfect to catch a fish as they skim the top of water. That's exactly what their claws are made for. And so suddenly with that one name, you now not only know what this bird's physical characteristics are, but you also kind of know that, oh, fish are important to this bird's living. So we should probably not just hunt all the fish. So in that one word, the world makes so much more sense than just saying bald eagle. The Anishinaabe names actually tell you the unique role that these species play. Those are ravens. Yeah. Do you know where that comes from? Well, you know, in your uh, the uvula in the back of your throat is called gagagin, and uh, the way my grandma said it, she was like, "Yeah, that's how come we call ravens that. That's what we use." Oh! <laughs> Look at them having a great time. Ah! They recently produced a pamphlet of Anishinaabe bird names, which they're distributing to birding communities. And they're working to raise funds to produce more. For that, Joe relies on Junaid. You get guys like Junaid coming in and learning the language and being so motivated. And so thinking about the idea that one day he might be fluent in my language, and maybe even I will not be. It's like I create in my, my own head a competition. I can't let him win. I'm going to win. And so it's motivating for me, too, to learn my language. He's saying, right now, like, you're my guy. You're the best second language learner I know with regard to Anishinaabe 
Also, I'm willing to wake up at 3 a.m. to go find birds, Duncan, you know? I have the similar level of obsession that Joe does, and that is crucial, because that obsession is what drives you through these periods of, like, am I in the right place? Should I be learning this language? It's weird that I'm in this position. I should really be supporting other indigenous people to be in this position. Am I a stealer? Is he a stealer? No, you know, this guy helps me so much because... I always got to correct him. <laughs> I got to make sure everything I'm saying is, is right because this guy's going to take that and run with it. So, yeah, it's sad that the classes are not so full with Nishnabe learners. The reality is these classes are sparse and uh, sometimes even having more non-Indigenous learners than Indigenous. And so that goes back to our motivation, my motivation for this project to use birds as a vehicle or a gateway into realizing the majesty of this language. As for Junaid, once upon a time he was a Pakistani kid who felt like he didn't belong here. Now? Now the idea of fitting in, I feel a lot more grounded on the land that I occupy. And that groundedness comes from Anishinaabe one. Connected to Anishinaabe Aki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There will be a moment where, you know, the wind will pick up real hard when you're in the middle of a hike. And suddenly this phrase will go through my head, you know, where I'm just like, oh, nishkema, like, kitche no den. Nitch no den. Kitche no den, you know? And they're like, oh, I know something. But uh, I've, I've started to take, take joy in the moments where the language sort of comes easier. It's still quite precious to be able to learn Anishinaabemowin, a language that was very purposefully stamped out. I think it's worth its weight in gold. That documentary was produced by me and AC Rowe, with mixing by Tanera McLean. Jimmy Gwetched and Anatig Statspongawish for acting as language advisor. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The show is produced by Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And if you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story, do us a solid. Give us a rating or review. It helps people find us. I'm Duncan McHugh. Jimmy Guetch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.